0: To know who Judith Butler is. Why? Because all the confusion and chaos of modern gender ideology is rooted in the work of Judith Butler. Hey, welcome to a special episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Pastor Bob Thune of Corndale Church, and in this episode of the Wednesday Conversation Commentary, I want to introduce you to the academic work of Judith Butler not because it's in any way true or good or beautiful but because it is influential as christians we need to be aware of some of the key thinkers who shape movements and who influence cultural dialogue and judith butler is one of those thinkers i think by becoming aware of her work and being familiar with her name it helps us be more intelligent evangelists and apologists in the modern world. So, more on who Judith Butler is and why she matters in just a moment. First, I want to invite you to reflect on how culture changes. Back in 2008 and then 2010, two key books came out to try to help Christians think about that question how does culture change? The first of those books was Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making. Released in 2008. The title introduces you to Crouch's understanding of culture. In his view, culture is something human beings make. It's what we shape that then shapes us. Think about one of the most basic aspects of culture food. If we were going out to dinner and I said, hey, do you want to go out for Italian or Mexican? I'm identifying two distinct cultures that are marked in many ways by the foods they have made. Crouch uses the example of the omelet and the example of an interstate. Both of these are things that human beings make, and both of them shape our lives and change the world we live in in distinctive ways. His example of the interstate was perhaps most helpful for me in understanding his paradigm. We currently live in an automobile-centric society. Unless you live in a very dense city on the East Coast or in a very small town, it's hard for most of us to think about life without an automobile or without some kind of public transportation that gets us around cities that are primarily designed to be navigated with automobiles. Why do we live in that kind of a world? Why is one of the stable institutions of our culture, automobile companies and automobile commercials and people owning cars and parking their cars and cleaning their cars and buying new cars, why are cars such an important part of life in America? Well, because a hundred years ago, human beings made the automobile. And then began to make roads for those automobiles and then build cities around those roads and reshape their cities by those roads. And then our lives began to be shaped around those cities and those automobiles and those roads. And now our entire culture and way of life is centered around commuting. Crouch goes back to the Federal Interstate Highway Act back in the Eisenhower administration and how it created interstates all across America. And how now the interstate is a staple of modern life. Most of us, if we want to go somewhere that's not too far away, we're going to get in a car and we're going to drive on an interstate to a city nearby. And there's a whole way that our lives function surrounding that interstate. And his point is, the interstate is something human beings made that now shapes our lives and affects our culture. And so the simplest way for us to affect culture is in Crouch's mindset is to make things as we create, as we build, as we are makers, we shape culture and transform it. But a second book with a slightly different understanding of cultural change came out in 2010. That book was James Davison Hunter's book to change the world. And we discussed a few aspects of that work on a recent episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Hunter's critique of how most Christians think about cultural change is that we think about it from the bottom up. Most of us are inherently populists, and especially evangelical Christianity in America tends to be a populist movement. That is, we think culture changes from the bottom up. We think that if we just boycott that business or vote for that politician or write letters to the editor or create a groundswell of support for a various cause— That's how we'll bring about change. But Hunter wants to argue that actually, culture changes from the top down. That is, the most substantive changes in culture come from a few elite institutions and influencers who possess significant cultural prestige and power that have the capacity to shape how people think. It was James Davison Hunter who first introduced me to the idea of symbolic capital, the way that certain brands or institutions just carry more weight in a culture than others. For instance, you might think about the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal as compared to the Omaha World Herald. Some of them just have more symbolic capital or weight in the eyes of the average person. If you're... In a debate with someone, you get a little more credibility by quoting a national newspaper like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal than a local paper like the Omaha World Herald. Or you might think about the difference in a degree from Harvard or Yale compared to a degree from Iowa State. In the end, they may offer a very similar education and prepare you to do very similar things, but one has much more symbolic capital. There's a reason Most Supreme Court justices are graduates of either Harvard or Yale Law School. These are the elite institutions in our society, and they carry a certain amount of cultural influence simply because of the place they hold and the weight they hold in our collective consciousness. Think even of the way we use metonyms like Hollywood or Wall Street. We are identifying these places as sources of a unique kind of cultural influence, Hollywood and Wall Street have a certain kind of power in our culture. And James Davis and Hunter's point is that cultural change filters down from these kinds of elite institutions. What happens in Hollywood, what happens on Wall Street ends up affecting all of us and shaping our culture. Here's Brad East writing back in 2017 summarizing James Davis and Hunter's paradigm of how culture changes. Brad East writes, think of Hunter's proposal as a matter of trickle-down culture. What appears to be most culturally relevant at any one time is in fact far downstream from its actual source. And the source, often as not, turns out to be a little red tome written two or three decades ago in jargon-laden academies, now collecting dust at your local college library. Its author, unbeknownst to you, taught for years at an Ivy League university. And this book was her life's work. When it was published, all her peers and all her former students throughout the country read it, reviewed it, cited it in their work, repurposed its ideas in their thought and taught it to their students. And somehow, infinitesimally, the book's ideas leak out, trickle down, year by year, through ways visible and invisible. And lo and behold, 20 or 30 years after the book's publication, everyone is using its vocabulary, bickering over its ideas, and intuiting its insights more by osmosis than by direct encounter. What's amazing about that quote from Brad East is it describes almost perfectly the way Judith Butler has shaped modern gender ideology. Judith Butler did, in fact, write a little red tome three decades ago in jargon-laden academies, which is now probably collecting dust at your local college library. And yet that book was a bombshell that transformed the whole world of gender studies. And in fact, transformed all of modern feminism. And so without further ado, let me introduce you to the thinking of Judith Butler. In order to do so, I'm going to lean on the work of two female writers and thinkers who are both working within the Catholic tradition. The first is Abigail Favale, who teaches at Notre Dame. And the second is Angela Franks, who teaches at St. John's Seminary in Boston. Abigail Favale wrote an excellent book last year titled The Genesis of Gender. This was a book that was first recommended to me by my podcast partner, Chris Hemelman, and I read it and loved it. I recently recommended this book to our entire church because I found it so helpful in understanding the modern gender paradigm. Franks wrote an article in the May 2023 issue of First Things, analyzing Judith Butler's thought, which had significant overlap with Favale's work. Both writers identified Judith Butler as the single most important figure in the last 40 years in the area of gender studies. Favale, in fact, says that Judith Butler transformed women's studies into gender or queer studies almost single-handedly. So then, who is this person, Judith Butler? Well, she's a professor of an endowed chair at Berkeley in California, and in 1990, she wrote a book titled Gender Trouble. That book and the worldview it proposed has transformed how we think about sex and gender. So let me read to you now from Abigail Favale. She writes, Butler's most famous contribution to gender studies is her concept of gender as a performance. In 1988, she rolls out the theory that what we perceive to be gender is actually an unconscious, socially compelled performance that creates the illusion of an essence. From birth, human beings are categorized by gender and given separate social scripts, so to speak. The continuous enacting of those scripts upholds the illusion that those categories are real rather than social constructs. Students tend to latch onto her idea of gender performativity because there's a sense in which it is true. Most people have had the experience of playing up their masculinity or femininity in order to conform to sex stereotypes. There is certainly a basic arbitrariness to some of the visible signals of sexual difference in terms of hairstyles and clothing, which vary from culture to culture. There is a sense in which all of us perform or enact and embody our sexed identity. What students have a harder time seeing is that Butler is arguing something much more radical. She's saying that sexed identity is only a performance. That there is no real woman or man underneath. The cultural expressions themselves are merely creating an illusion that men and women exist. I'll get more into this in just a minute. But first, I think it's important to note what Abigail Favali points out here, that there is a, fa- a sense in which gender is a performed ritual, right? There, we've all experienced trying to play up our masculinity or femininity. We all understand that what sh- what looks like masculine or feminine can vary from culture to culture, hairstyles and dress and all of that. So there's a sense in which this is in some way culturally conditioned. That much is true. But what Favale says is that's not what Butler's saying that's radical. What's radical is she's saying that sex identity is only a performance, that there's no such thing as being a woman or being a man. There's only performing as a woman or performing as a man. There's no essential essence or core to who we are There's just the role we choose to take on. More on this in just a minute. One of the things I think Christians need to do is to be more courageous about opposing bad ideas. And the reason I want you to understand Judith Butler's thinking is because I think it's full of bad ideas. And I want you as a Christian who believes the Bible and worships Jesus to have all kinds of confidence opposing bad ideas stupid, ignorant ideas that everybody around us accepts as true. In order to give you a taste of the kind of writer Judith Butler is, I want to read to you a paragraph from one of her articles that won the 1998 award for bad writing from the journal Literature and Philosophy. This is an academic journal that every year gives out an award for really bad writing. In 1998, they gave that award to Judith Butler for this sentence. I'm about to read the sentence, and by the time I get done, you're going to have no idea what I just said. Here's a sentence from Judith Butler. The move from a structuralist account, in which capital is understood to structure social relations in relatively homologous ways, to a view of hegemony, in which power relations are subject to repetition, convergence, and re-articulation brought the question of temporality into the thinking of structure and marked a shift from a form of Althusserian theory that takes structural totalities as theoretical objects to one in which the insights into the contingent possibility of structure inaugurate a renewed conception of hegemony as bound up with the contingent sites and strategies of the rearticulation of power. Do you understand any of that? Neither do I. And Abigail Favale says, The point here she wants to make by quoting that uh, sentence from Judith Butler is that one of the dangers of gender theory is its inscrutability. That part of what these people try to do is to be so obscure and obtuse that average people feel like, I must just be dumb. I must not know what they're talking about. That must be a really intelligent person. Nope, that's a bad writer who has no idea how to say what she's saying. And that's part of why Judith Butler has all kinds of academic prestige is because many people just assume, gosh, she's using a lot of big words. She must know things I don't know. Now, let's go back to her book, Gender Trouble, and to this idea that sex and gender are a performance or what's called gender performativity. You might even be familiar with that term if you're sort of up to date on some of the cultural conversations around gender. Here's what Angela Franks says in her article, In First Things. She writes, if Butler had stuck with the notion of gender as a cultural construction, gender trouble would have been just another statement of widely accepted views. But Butler went further. She argued that the sexed body itself is formed by cultural codes. In other words, what feminists regarded as a biological fact is in truth a construct called sex. This claim about the culturally constructed and sexed body was Butler's Copernican revolution. In Butler's theorizing, both sexed bodies and gendered cultural codes were formed by social constructs, or what today's cultural theorists call discourses of power. It was a startling claim in 1990. The boldness of the hypothesis that we can deconstruct the body itself rocketed Butler to fame. Those two paragraphs are important because what Angela Franks is pointing out is that everybody in second wave feminism would have said to be a woman is a real thing and to be a man is a real thing. Now, gender is cultural. Those are sort of the norms we try to conform to. Here's what a woman should do in our culture. Here's what a man should do in our culture. But no no good feminist would have argued there's no such thing as woman or there's no such thing as man. In fact, all of second wave feminism relied on trying to get women to have equal opportunities and equal power and equal authority as men. What Judith Butler said is that sex, like gender, is sheerly a social construct. There is no such thing as being woman or being man. These are simply social constructs. And the idea that sex... That the sexed body is a social construct was a radical idea that no one had ever thought of and that no one should have thought of because it's flatly false and incoherent. But that doesn't matter when you're a professor at Cal Berkeley. Now, Judith Butler is working in the postmodernist tradition. And let me read a few more paragraphs from Angela Franks to help you understand how postmodernism understands personhood because the key here is understanding that for the postmodernist, there is no reality. Everything is in flux. Nothing is solid. There's no truth. Nothing is grounded. Nothing is stable. There are no givens. Everything is in flux. Reading again from Angela Franks' piece in First Things. Performativity for Butler is not grounded in our interior, as though we were actors possessing identities prior to our roles. Rather, we are created from the outside in, constantly reshaped and reformed by our desires and actions. The roles create the actors. In this respect, she articulates the postmodern consensus, which holds that our interiority, the experience that feels most like the real me, is an illusion formed by social norms. We feel as though we are something only because we have performed a socially assigned role so many times that it seems natural. According to Butler, every aspect of our identity, as fathers and mothers, teachers and doctors, citizens and believers, is constructed. Like a cocoon spun by a silkworm, identity is produced or generated. So, Judith Butler holds to a view of identity, and like a good postmodernist, all postmodern philosophers think this way, that there is no essence to you. There is only what you do, what you perform. There's no essential you. There's just the you that you've learned to be by playing all the roles and scripts that everybody around you wanted you to play for your whole life. Obviously, if there's no essential you, if there's no core reality to who you are, then you can be whatever you decide to be tomorrow. And in fact, what it means to be is simply to play a new script. You can see how how here how we get to the logic of transgenderism. There's no essential nature to you. You are not a sexed and gendered human being as a man or as a woman. You're just a... a Someone who's learned how to play a script. And so if you want to play a different script tomorrow, if you want to live in a different way tomorrow, then you can change and that will change, in fact, who you actually are. Now, one thing I learned from Cornelius Van Til is that all non-Christian thought, all thought that denies the possibility of objective truth is in the end incoherent. Van Til said, all thought has to begin from the assumption that we live in God's world. And in fact, even views uh, of truth that are wrong, but at least that are absolute, have the advantage of they're either true or false, and they start from understanding that there is such thing as truth and falsehood. All non-Christian thought that tries to be an end in itself is inherently self-defeating. And I want to show you how this is true in Judith Butler's postmodern way of thinking. I want to show you how, if we accept Judith Butler's basic principle that both sex and gender are social constructs, it leads to an inevitable conflict in transgender ideology that is irresolvable. And in fact, it is the place right now where I suspect this whole movement is going to cave in on itself. On the one hand, transgender ideology believes that sex is entirely a social construct. I may have a male body, but that is merely an accident of the body I was born in. It's not essential to who I am. And so if I decide that I want to reshape it surgically into a female body, I should be able to do that because after all, there's nothing given here. This is entirely a social construct and even my sexed and gendered body does not say something that is true it's simply a script I've lived into. That's transgenderism built on the thinking of Judith Butler. And yet at the same time, the transgender narrative requires that there is something about me that is essential and fixed and stable. The transgender narrative is I am a woman trapped in a man's body. The real me is feminine or is bisexual or is gender non-conforming or is gender queer or is whatever. And so in order to make my body conform to the real me, I need to change it. So at the same time, the logic of transgenderism says there is no stable essence to who I am and that there is a stable essence that's so essential to who I am that I need to change my physical body to match it. Both of those cannot be true at the same time. It's one or the other. Either there is no stable essence, or there is. And so you can see the inherent inconsistency that this kind of thought brings us to. And I want to invite you to see how the gospel provides such a beautiful and lasting answer to this problem. Because the gospel says that grace restores nature. That is, That the grace of God that comes to me in Christ restores what I was given in creation, which is a grounded and stable and settled sense of identity. All of us were initially created by God with a stable sense of self. Sin has complicated and convoluted that so that I lose sense of who I am. And I'm looking everywhere to try to give myself an identity And then when I come to faith in Jesus Christ, I am given a secure, stable, solid identity as an adopted son or daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ that cannot be changed by my behavior, by my attitudes, by my sin, by my selfishness. None of that changes my new identity that I'm given in Christ. And so the gospel provides me a fixed and stable essence identity from which to navigate and inhabit the world. That's the goodness and beauty of the gospel, and the one thing that Judith Butler's thinking can never give me, because there is no essence. There is no core, stable identity in postmodern thinking. Now, to get a little more nerdy, at the risk of not having been nerdy enough yet in this podcast, I want to bring you to the end of the Angela Franks's article where she draws a distinction between essence and accident. I think these are two helpful categories for every Christian to understand because they're basic Christian metaphysics, and they help us make sense of the incoherence of postmodern thinking. Think of it this way. The essence of something is what's unchanging about it, the accident is what changes. So I am essentially a man. Accidentally, I am a man with brown hair. I'm a man who's six feet tall. I'm a man who's a father and a husband. I'm a man who's a certain number of years old. Those things could all be different and have all been different at various seasons of my life. But I have still been the same me. Every human being has an essence, a stable, abiding reality of who they are. And a set of accidental features, things that could have been different. I could have been born with different color hair or different color eyes. Or I could have been taller or shorter or fatter or thinner. All of those things don't affect the essence of who I am. You might think of it this way. Substance is a noun. Accident is an adjective. I am a fat man or a skinny man or a tall man or a short man. All those things, fat, skinny, tall, short, those are all accidental features of who I am. The essence is, I am a man. This distinction between essence and accident is the key to how the Christian worldview solves the inconsistencies that are present in postmodern thought. Here's how Angela Franks describes it. By eliminating substance and making persons into processes, Butler eliminates what allows relations to exist at all. The paradox is tragic. Motivated by a desire to save life from imprisonment in something fixed and unchanging, she ends up articulating a view in which we are mere social constructions, too insubstantial to bear the weight of enduring, consequential, and defining relations to others. Hers is a fluid world in which each of us dissolves. Older ways of thinking about life are more humane. I exist not as a process or as some immovable modern substance, but as a woman, as a mother with a certain age and height in history, with a certain store of knowledge and emotional responses. All these qualities are accidents, metaphysically speaking, but that does not make them unimportant. In fact, they are the stuff of my life. The becoming of accidents that come to be in me and pass away as I enter into new friendships, learn new things, lose loved ones, all this is held in being by me as a personal substance. Accidents give me color and distinctiveness, I give them being. What you see Angela Franks doing in that quote is explaining that as all of us live in a a human lifetime, there's something about us that remains the same, and there are many things about us that change and transform. As she says, accidents give me color and distinctiveness, my height and my hair color and my eye color and my cultural background, all of these things, give me distinctiveness, but I give them being. If there was no I, if there was no Bob Thune existing as a human person, these accidents would not be known to the world. They are there because they're aspects of me. I am the substance that gives these accidents expression in the world. And as she points out, in Judith Butler's conception of human beings, If everything I am is a social construct, then there's nothing that can give enduring, defining relationship to others. She says hers is a fluid world in which each of us dissolves. And that's the problem with thinking of everything about me, both sex and gender, as a social construct. If that is true, if everything I am is just some script I'm living out, then there's no actual me, there's no substance, there's no defining stable reality to who I am in the world and thus I dissolve. And friends, I think that's what we are seeing in all of the gender experimentation going on in our culture. You'll notice that most of it is not making people happier, freer, more secure, more stable, more steady, in fact, it tends to lead to greater and greater fragmentation and disintegration and confusion. Because what all of us as human beings need is a place to stand. We need a stable, defined, fixed grounding point, a stable and secure identity from which to stand and look out at the world. And only grace-restoring nature in the gospel of Jesus Christ can give us that. So, I want you to be familiar with the work of Judith Butler so that you can understand the philosophical background of much of what we experience right now in our culture as a very odd, strange understanding of gender and sexuality. I want you to see that this all comes from somewhere, And that, as James Davison Hunter points out, that dusty books on a bookshelf in a college library 30 years ago actually have great power to shape how our culture sees the world. So it matters that we as Christians think well. It matters that we learn to engage ideas thoughtfully. And it matters that we raise up Christians to do battle in the realm of ideas, to be scholars and academics and teachers and professors who can go do work at that level that's culturally and intellectually upstream from the rest of us so that we can provide good, sound, wise ideas that trickle down into the rest of society. We are all downstream from Judith Butler now. And James Davison Hunter's point about trickle-down culture is certainly true in this case. We are living in a world that in many ways was made by the thinking of Judith Butler. And yet it is a world that at the end is incoherent, unstable, and illusory. And so let us build a world grounded in the truth of Scripture the reality of the creator creature distinction and the beauty of the gospel that actually gives people a fixed and stable grounding point from which to look out at the world around them. The goal of the Wednesday conversation is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. We primarily record this podcast as a way of just serving our church. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, As always, we thank you for listening in. Our prayer is that this conversation would be helpful to you as you minister the gospel in your own context, wherever that might be. We always love to hear from listeners, so if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, just feel free to send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday conversation.